I'm gonna have to steam, man. No shitter ever came between me and Christine. Oh man, there is oh, nothing finer than being behind the wheel of your own car. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to a special episode of Cryptique. Tonight, I'm joined, as always, by a man known as the not-so-little bastard. Ryan, what's up? Yep, you found... You must have found my old birthday cards. That is indeed what the family called me. (laughs) Just not your dad. (laughs) But, uh... (laughs) Alright. Well, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm... I'm excited for this topic. We did some research mm-hmm. separately, listened to some other shows, and uh, I don't know. I'm into it. I like it. It's a lot. It's a lot more like back to basics than some of the stuff we've done recently. So I think it's going to be a good one. It'll be interesting. So let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail If you like this format better, if you like the more scripted format better. Uh, just, you know, give us some feedback because we just want to make shows you like. You know, we make shows we like and we hope you like them. But, you know, you're our pals, you're our buddies, you're our crypt keepers. So we want to we wanna do what you like, right? In this episode, when, That's right. you know, when you brought up James Dean, we talked about like, okay, well, there's not a ton of stuff. It's not going to be an hour and 45 minute episode on James Dean so let's look into some other uh, you know haunted and cursed cars and when I first started I was like ah this is kind of boring and then I got to like the fifth or sixth page of you know Google and DuckDuckGo and I was like wow well this is getting interesting so you want to tell them what they need to know so we can jump right in as always like subscribe share rate comment whatever it is you can do it helps us with our battle against the algorithms but the best thing you can do for us is always to share the show with someone you think would like it someone who's into the same kind of weird stuff that we are and hopefully you are if you're listening for show if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you're into or what you'd like us to cover next you can do so at crypticpodcast.gmail.com you can find us on youtube at cryptic podcast tiktok at cryptic underscore podcast and you can see what merch we're selling at crypticpodcaststore.com all right well with the business out of the way what are we talking about tonight Tonight, we are going to be talking about haunted cars. So I've got a story for you, which you've already alluded to, which is the enigmatic life and legend of James Dean and his car. I wanted to throw enigmatic in there since we're trying to eliminate that word. All right. But today we're going to get into the, the story that has gripped at least a portion of the public's imagination for decades. The Life and Tragic Death of James Dean. This isn't just a story about a Hollywood icon. It is a somewhat complicated narrative that intertwines fame, youthful rebellion, and some strange mysteries. Mm -hmm. James Dean was more than just an actor. He was a cultural phenomenon who encapsulated the angst and aspirations of an entire generation. Despite starring in only three major Hollywood films, East of Eden in 1955, Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, and Giant in 1956, 
His impact was so profound that he remains a subject of fascination even today. Well, he was the only guy that could pull off a tucked-in t-shirt. If you're tucking your t-shirt in out there, guys, and it's <laughs> you're just wearing a t-shirt, like if you're wearing a suit and you have a t-shirt underneath it, obviously. But if you're just wearing jeans and a t-shirt and your name's not James Dean, untuck that t-shirt. You can still show off your belt buckle if that's, you know, what you're into. <laughs> You know what? I would agree with that. I think that's a fashion standard that it's done. Yeah. It's a public service announcement, really. (laughs) (laughs) So James Dean was born on February 8th of 1931 in Marion, Indiana. His father, Winton Dean, was a dental technician and his mother, Mildred Dean, was a housewife. James also had a younger sister, Hortense. I think that's how you pronounce that name. When James was five years old, his family moved to Santa Monica, California. His mother, unfortunately, died of cancer four years later, and James was raised by his aunt and uncle on their farm in Fairmount, Indiana. He was a good student in high school and excelled in sports, particularly basketball and track. He also participated in drama productions. After graduating from high school in 1949, he moved back to California to attend Santa Monica City College. He then transferred to UCLA, where he studied theater arts. While at UCLA, James began to pursue an acting career. He appeared in several plays and television commercials. He also worked as a parking lot attendant at CBS Studios, where he met Rogers Brackett, a radio director who became his mentor. So do you think, like, you pull up, you know, in your, uh, I I don't know, what what was big in the... Your Lincoln or something? Yeah, something big in the 50s, and you toss James Dean the keys... How do you think that car is going to get parked? I just feel like it's going to, you know, he's going to pull a Hollywood backwards out of the. Like a J turn? Yeah. And just like slide backwards into a parallel parking spot or something. You get your car back and, you know, it's like, smells like burnt rubber and. Yeah. Half the tread is missing from the tires. I think that's a probably not a, not a terrible bet, but. In 1951, James moved to New York City to study at the Actors Studio. He also appeared in several off-Broadway productions, including See the Jaguar, which was a financial flop and was criticized for being a pretentious and pointless play with unrealistic characters and plot. This play only ran for four performances in 1952, but it was his Broadway debut at the age of 20. And fortunately for James Dean, caught the attention of director Elia Kazan and led to his first major film. In 1955, he made his film debut in the drama East of Eden, which I mentioned before, which was a critical and commercial success, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. James went on to star in two more films, like I mentioned earlier, in 1955, Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. And I feel like Rebel Without a Cause is probably his most famous film. Yeah. But both films were also successful and really helped to cement his status as a new star in Hollywood, or at least in film, since a lot of that was in New York. Sure. James Dean's short but meteoric career left a lasting legacy, and he's considered one of the most iconic actors of the 20th century, as his films continue to be popular even today. He's also remembered as a symbol of the rebellious youth of the 50s. Now I want to get into, you know, his Hollywood career, but also, you know, what happened. Sure. You know, what, what the event that's bringing him into this podcast today. So... 
Dean's portrayal of Cal Trask in the East of Eden catapulted him to stardom. The film was a cultural phenomenon and basically turned him into an icon right away. But this rise was cut short. On September 30th of 1955, Dean, who was an avid racing enthusiast and seemed to kind of get into it just for grins, just to do it as an amateur, kind of started doing it and then got hooked a little bit. Yeah. He was driving a Porsche 550 Spider, which he affectionately called Little Bastard. And this was apparently written by, uh, you know, somebody at a body shop mm. on the trunk lid yeah. of that car. Because maybe some people don't know this. A lot of cars, if they have pinstriping or something like that, that's oftentimes done by hand. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to watch people do it. It really, like, it is a special talent to be able to do, like, the ghost flames and the pinstriping and all that stuff. Yeah. So he was driving the little bastard to a race in Salinas, California. And he was accompanied by a mechanic, Wolf, Rolf Witherich. <laughs> Rolf I like Wolf better, but whatever. Wolf Witherich. Uh, accompanied by his mechanic, Rolf Witherich, Dean collided almost head-on with a 1954 Tudor sedan, driven by 23-year-old Cal Poly student Donald Turnipseed. And that sounds like a made-up name, but that is the name that I found everywhere. Uh, and this is kind of where things get... I mean, if you were going to make up a name, it probably wouldn't be Turnip Seed. It'd be better than yeah. Turnip Seed, yeah. So there are different reports of what happened here. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the sources that I was finding said that it was Dean that crossed the center line and hit Donald, and then other people saying that, no, it was, you know, Donald Turnipseed who crossed into his lane or tried to turn in front of him or whatever. Yeah, they said the car was probably pretty hard to see because it was, you know, I mean, we're talking about basically something that is about the size of like a Mazda Miata, maybe even smaller Mm -hmm. and probably lighter. And it was uh, like painted silver. So it was kind of reflective and it sat. You know, his head was probably three feet off the ground when he was sitting in it. Right. Right. That's one of the main things that I found as a contributing factor to the accident was it was his speed is hard to nail down. Some of the sources I found said that he was hitting up to 150 miles an hour on the way there. Some saying like, oh, no, he could have only done 55. You know what? I thought we and he probably had some modifications done to his car but i think the top speed on that car was like 140 or something so he may have had some some other stuff done i know his car was a four speed it was available in a five speed but his was a four speed so i I don't know if that top end would be there i don't know either i think the yeah his was a four speed and i don't think they even had a five speed until the next year okay but the mechanic that was with him, Rolf, was a Porsche mechanic, right. like a factory mechanic. So he might have been able to do something. And I think that what I saw was a report or at least an account where uh, Rolf, who survived, said that at one point they'd hit 120 miles an hour. Yeah. Like they had documented that they have been able to hit that. <clears throat> but either way, it seems that to me, what seems the most likely is that Dean was speeding towards him. And Turnipseed was turning left. Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like. He was kind of turning 
off the road at a normal pace, like a relaxed pace, not doing any, you know, Burnout. crazy evasive driving or anything like that. And he didn't see this little silver bullet coming out. Right. Because like, like you were saying the you know, most of the accounts say that the lighting at that time would have been really difficult. The size and height of that car would have made it really difficult to see. So basically there was no way that the two drivers would have seen each other in time to be able to do anything about it. Yeah. Think about motorcycles. Like, you know, they have those flashing lights now, but you know, they always say, watch out for motorcycles, watch out for, and I do. Sometimes they're riding wheelies at 90 miles an hour down the, you know, between two lanes, but very difficult to pick up just because they're so tiny. Yeah, it's not, in my experience, it's not on the highway where I'm worried. I've almost been nailed coming out of like parking lots and gas stations and stuff on motorcycles. With, with you on That's the motorcycle or, or them coming, like someone else on a motorcycle? Not me on the motorcycle. Oh, I didn't know you had a motorcycle. I don't, I don't anymore, but I used to ride. All right. Good to know. Ryan, are yeah, you I've a one percenter? Just creamed coming out of gas station. No, <laughs> no. if I was one percenter, I'd still have a motorcycle. Yeah, that's a good point. Blood in, blood out. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so, Turnip Seed was only slightly injured. I saw it bruising and a gash to the forehead, while the mechanic, Rolf, was thrown from the car and required emergency surgery. Well, cars back then were like tanks like regular cars were like tanks. So yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the old crash tests where all the the crumple zones are you. The car doesn't give it all when it's hit. It's you that gives. Yeah, that's very true. So James Dean himself was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital, kind of leaving the world in shock a little bit. You know, this new star who had just come out, just had three hit movies been nominated for an Academy Award, all of a sudden it's gone. So the news of this untimely death spread across the globe, leaving fans and the Hollywood community kind of devastated. They just lost this like new promising talent. And his work was so impactful that he became the first actor to posthumously receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for both East of Eden and Giant. Mm Mm-hmm. But what adds a mythical or cryptic kind of sheen to this is the legend of the curse associated with the little bastard. Which we'll find out more about after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. So, after the accident, the car took on this new legendary status as a cursed vehicle. Now, a lot of the really good stories say that George Barris, a man named George Barris, bought the wreck directly from Dean's family to sell off some of the parts, but then to use the car for different things, try to display it or whatever. Well, keep in mind, too, while we're talking about this, how many cars, how many of those Porsches were made? Like 65 or something like that? It, it was yeah, less than 100. So you can imagine basically the parts are race car parts 
in the you know 1950s for a car that there was only let's say less than 100 made very valuable still so the first story that george bears told was that he well he said there were a bunch of bizarre events around this car pretty much straight away first he claimed that when the car was brought to his shop it fell while being unloaded from a truck and bo broke both legs of the mechanic it fell on ouch he claimed that he sold the engine from the car to Dr. Troy McHenry, who hit a tree during a race and was killed while running this cursed engine. Yep. Another claim is that another doctor and racer crashed while driving a car using a salvage transaxle out of this and was paralyzed. The car was also said to have been partially reworked so that it could be displayed and fell off of its platform or plinth, breaking a teenager's hip. This was at a safety like a road safety kind of conference something oh, like perfect. that I, I found references <laughs> to it yeah <laughs> yeah we're, we're gonna drop this record car on you so a couple weeks after that incident it reportedly fell off a truck that was transporting it somehow killing the truck driver i don't exactly understand how this one worked was this a story that you were aware of who knows who knows what kind of truck it was being hauled on i mean if it's a regular yeah tow truck i could see that you know messing the driving up it starts to get squirrely on the back end and stuff like right. that but if it's on you know like a big truck it's probably not going to you know like make that truck really yeah like have much. it swing off the road or something like that but yeah that one wasn't particularly clear so there were two more a thief apparently attempting to steal the steering wheel out of the car wound up somehow breaking his arm and a mechanic working on the car received a broken leg when one of the doors fell off and fell onto him. Jeez. So a lot of misfortune. It's almost safer to drive the car than it is to stand near it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, however, it appears that Barris was probably lying about a lot of this. Okay. I found a few automotive websites and you know articles, magazines that talk about these stories, and they say that this George Barris guy was kind of a shameless showman. Yeah, you know that really liked to give people a story. And we love people like that, man. I mean, I don't want made-up stuff, but I do like that he was kind of in tune with this car having maybe a personality of its own and kind of living up to the yeah. name little bastard. Yeah. All right. So Barris might have been lying about this, but they're, well, we'll get into it. So there's evidence to suggest that the car was totaled by insurance and sold for parts to Dr. William F. Esrich. Eskridge was an amateur racer who competed against Dean three times in 1955. Soon after Dean's, crash Eskridge tracked down the totaled Porsche Spider. Eskridge tracked down the totaled Porsche and bought the car's engine and transmission and other working parts from a wrecking yard in Burbank. That's one account of it. I found a few stories where this particular person bought it. Some say that he bought the whole wreck for a thousand dollars and took the parts that he wanted and just kind of got rid of the rest. But I've got to believe that the engine and transmission would be 
worth the worth most yeah. in this car. Yeah, this is the story that makes the most sense to me. So Eskridge kept the engine and installed it in his own Lotus 9 race car, while the rest of the car was sold to another racer named Walt Turner, who used some of the bodywork to repair his own Porsche. So again, like you were saying, not very many of these made, so any panels or pieces that can be salvaged would be hmm. valuable to somebody else. So Dr. Eskridge raced the car at a few events in 1956 and never had any major problems. However, in October of that year, he reportedly loaned the transmission and some of the suspension parts to his friend, Dr. Troy McHenry, who we talked about earlier as part of Barris's curse stories. Mm -hmm. uh, this guy was also an amateur racer, and he did crash his car and was killed in the same race in which had competed without incident. It's just a weird thing to... Be like, hey, you want to borrow my engine and some suspension parts? I mean, I realize race car drivers are always, you know, switching things out. And like at NASCAR, they could probably, you know, some of these guys could yank an engine and transmission out in five minutes and have a new one put back in. But it just seems yeah. like a lot of work. It does seem like a lot of work. And I looked into that a little bit. And Eskridge's car, I think it was his car, was like part Lotus, part Porsche, part Austin Healey. Like, all the parts were from different cars. And I've actually known a couple people like that who are like, oh, yeah, just, you know, check out this car. Like, the body is a Chevy Impala or whatever. But the rear end is from, like, a pickup truck, and the engine's from a, you know, it's a Hemi from an old Dodge or whatever, and they just Frankenstein together this thing. And that seems to be kind of yeah. what, what these guys were doing. They were, you know, sort of putting together different parts to figure out what was going to give them an edge. Still seems risky, just in general. Not not with the James Dean car in particular, but you know, once you start ignoring factory specs completely, yeah, you know, it does kind of present as a a possible issue for wrecks and you know, just even like malfunctions and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know if I've ever brought this up on the show, but. Um, James May, who is one of the hosts of Top Gear, or former host, now it's uh, what the Grand Tour on Prime. He has a YouTube channel, mm -hmm. and in one of the shows that he did, he was just answering like mail, right? And somebody had written in saying that he wanted to lift his car and modify it and do all these things, and it was a Ford, whatever. And his dad yeah. was telling him not to, and he was saying. You know, his answer was basically like, if you want to do this as a form of self-expression, like painting a painting or, you know, something like that, then go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. You know, but he's like, but really, your dad's right. <laughs> You're probably going to yeah. ruin it. He's like, Ford make cars. He's like, I don't know what you do, but it's probably not that. So right. if you modify it, you're probably going to ruin it. Sure. Yeah. But these were guys trying to get the absolute most out of them, so... So after McHenry died, some there were well, there were quite a few people who started to believe that, you know, the car or the engine or some of the parts were cursed. There were additional accidents involving people who come into contact with the engine, but there was no way to know for sure if they were caused by it or just coincidence. So basically what we're saying is James Jimmy Dean got turned into sausage in a oh my car God. Wreck. 
So the engine is supposedly still in existence today. Mm. It's believed that Eskridge's son still has the engine and or the race car that his father put it into. But it has been kept in storage for a number of years, and he has never allowed it to be raced again, if it still exists. Because there are multiple sites and articles and magazines and publications claiming that it still exists, but, you know, it's kind of under lock and key. So you mean Zach Baggins hasn't bought it yet? No, no. Oh. Uh, so all these incidents, whether they're real, fabricated, or essentially just used as advertisement, like for George Barris fueled rumors of this curse and turned the car into sort of a dark fascination for people. One might even say an enigma. An enigma of the macabre. Yeah. Some people say macabre. <laughs> some people say macabre. What do you say? Macabre. macabre. Yeah, I, I heard a lawyer uh, that we'll get to later say macabre. Macabre. And- All right, so there's a little bit more to the story. Uh, In 1960, the car was being shipped from a traffic safety exhibit in Florida back to L.A. And this is the exhibit where supposedly, according to Barris, the car fell off its platform and broke a teenager's hip. Mm -hmm. The truck carrying it was involved in a crash and the car was never seen again. Now, this is something that I found at a couple different sources that they're... You know, it really did go missing at some point, and nobody knows exactly where, you know, the, the majority of the wreck is. Right. Theories about the car's disappearance are numerous. Some think it was stolen and destroyed, while others believe it's out there somewhere waiting to claim its next victim. Ooh. Uh, like Christine. There is no yeah. concrete evidence to support any of these theories, though, necessarily, and it remains just kind of an unsolved mystery at this point. But there are a few possible explanations for the disappearance. So let's hear it. It could have been stolen and destroyed. It's the most likely explanation. The car was valuable and it would have been fairly easy to steal. Once it was stolen, it could have been dismantled or destroyed to prevent it from falling into the wrong hands. Those parts could have been sold off. The pieces could have been sold off, Mm -hmm. whatever. Or it could be in somebody's garage. Like, hey, I've got James Dean's car out here. Yeah. It could have been lost in transit. The car was being shipped in a sealed truck, so it's possible that it was lost or misplaced during the journey. However, it seems unlikely as the truck was only traveling a short distance. So, it, you know, it's it's unlikely that it's just in like a shipping container out there somewhere that nobody's looked in. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find it on storage wars. <laughs> it seems unlikely, although if there was a show that was going to find it, that might be it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, It could have been hidden away. Some believe that the car was hidden away by someone who believed in the curse, and they may have kept it in storage or even destroyed it to keep that curse from harming anyone else. So that's That's a little bit more extreme. Yeah. Well, that is a good intention. Do that though. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then the last theory is that it's still out there somewhere. The most interesting possibility to me is that the car could just be sitting in a barn or garage somewhere waiting to be discovered. Or it could be, in one form or another, out on the road, still causing accidents and injuries. Well, with a car like this, uh, one thing, I think it's great because the parts were probably extremely valuable. So if somebody did, I mean, just as car parts, not even that it was James Dean's car or anything like that. So if somebody hid it away to protect the innocent, that's very noble. 
good for you if you're out there. So the story of James Dean Carr has been a subject of a lot of debate, with skeptics and believers offering their own perspectives. Skeptics argue that the incidents surrounding the car could be a series of unfortunate coincidences. Uh, it's really hard not to say a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> Often pointing out that car accidents are sadly common. They suggest that the tale of the cursed car is more folklore than fact and possibly amplified by confirmation bias. You know, guys like us going out there looking for evidence of the haunted or cursed car. Sure. On the other hand, believers point to the series of accidents and the car's mysterious disappearance as evidence of something supernatural. Some even occupy a middle ground, suggesting that the car may have become a psychological symbol of doom affecting those who interacted with it. And personally, I think that this may be a case of intention having an impact on real objects and events. You know, it's conceivable, given what we know about tulpas and the power of intention, that these events really did happen, but they happened primarily because the people who were sort of captivated by this story expected them to happen. Yeah. You know, the car itself may have had no power, but if everybody's focused on it, this is the car that killed you know, this incredibly popular person. Oh, and I heard it has a curse. And you have millions of people thinking about it, putting that intention out. Mm -hmm. I think it could cause something real to happen. But there is a somewhat recent development, which is funny because of something you mentioned earlier. Dun, dun, dun. The transaxle, which is a transmission built into one of the axles of the car which was a four-speed, like you pointed out, and very mm -hmm. rare because there weren't very many of them. The transaxle of the little bastard appears to have been used in Dr. McHenry's car and was salvaged after his accident and sold to a collector in the early 90s, who appears to have held on to it until it was auctioned on March 17th of 2020 on Bring a Trailer. It sold for $382,000 to none other than your boy, Zach Baggins, with the intention of displaying it in his haunted museum in Vegas. Woo! How does so, he have that much money, dude? I know there's 48 different ghost hunt or ghost adventures shows. That show is so dang. hard to keep track of. <laughs> oh, I, I have no it's... idea how much money that guy's got. Well, we said he was worth 10 million. But that's oh, like, man, I mean, he's like a corporation too, though, right? Like he's not necessarily spending Zach Baggins money to buy that stuff he's using like zach baggins or baggins the like corporate money right like you know when we make our second million dollars from cryptique that <laughs> is cryptique money you know what i mean it's not yeah it's I like mean, company money yeah so i mean you know he's looking at these things as investments but yeah that's a shit ton I don't, of money man yeah it's a lot of money and i know that like uh aaron one of the guys, them, his yeah. investigation team, like, had to live with his parents for a while, I think, even while they were doing the show, maybe. Wow. So it's like, I don't know if maybe they all went through a hard time and now they're all doing fairly well, or maybe Zach's the only one doing particularly well off of it. Yep. But <laughs> as we conclude this story, it's evident that the story of James Dean and his Porsche 550 Spider, the little bastard, is a compelling blend of Hollywood glamour, youthful rebellion, tragic loss, and enduring mystery. James Dean's legacy is immortalized through his iconic roles and the enigmatic tale 
of his car, which adds another layer of complexity to his already captivating life. I'm, I was considering throwing more enigmatics in there for you. I <laughs> figured. The final aspect of the iconic status of James Dean and his car is how brief it all is. Mm-hmm. And this is something you and I were discussing outside of the show. James Dean was first on Broadway in 1952, first in the movies in 1955, and died in that same year, even before the release of the third and final film. Mm-hmm. A celebrity taken so young and after a short series of successes, never ages in the public mind. He'll never grow old or star in any flops. We never get to see him typecast or start to lose a step as younger stars begin to take over. Mm-hmm. He burst onto the scene and was gone just as suddenly, meaning that he's pretty much eternally 24 in all of our imaginations with his tucked in white t-shirt. Yeah. Why couldn't he have just made it to 27 like the rest of them? Yeah. So what this story really highlights for me is the power of storytelling, whether through movies, books, or even podcasts like ours, stories can captivate us and even make us believe in unbelievable things. So when you hear these legends, I think it's probably a good idea to kind of appreciate the way the stories have shaped our culture, but also how our beliefs can cause and shape these stories. You know, if people hadn't believed that there was a curse, there might not have been anything. You know, there might not be accidents reported. It, It really could be around intention, which I think is absolutely a possibility. It's one of those things that I did not used to believe in until, you know, a couple situations where it's like, I just believe so hard this thing is going to happen, even if it's unlikely, and it does. Mm-hmm. And I really think that if everybody's negative about something, it, it's the outcome's going to be negative. Would you put a little bastard part? And I say Lil just because I like Lil better than Little, but it was like a little. rapper. Yeah. But would you put a James Dean little bastard part in any of your cars because i wouldn't uh now none of my porsches i might i might it depends yeah i was about to say it depends yeah i mean if you go to our tiktok there's going to be a a kind of a beat intro coming soon video you know like we do if you've seen it but you can see a picture of his car after the wreck and it is pretty insane looking. The steering wheel is on the wrong side of the car. Like it, it looks like you pick the car up one hand on the front bumper, one hand on the back bumper and twisted. And it just forced the steering wheel is like where the passenger's right knee would be. So the car is completely mm. twisted. And I mean, there was, I, I just can't, understand how the other guy lived his mechanic he got thrown from the car oh okay there there were no roll bars uh if you listen to the haunted garage uh podcast that's some of our buddies they go into great detail on some of these and on that podcast they said that basically for every hundred pounds that you remove in weight from your car it's like adding 10 horsepower But man, what could a roll cage have done for this? You know what I mean? Just a 250 pound roll cage. You lose what 
it's that 25 25 horsepower yeah you know it's it's old sad. cars old convertibles make me nervous because well even older cars they were not they really didn't have any like rollover protection mm-hmm. you know my car even though it's a convertible has like a pop-up roll bar yeah most of them do you know if they were to if it were to roll over there are these two sections in the back behind the rear head seat like headrest that pop off in these these roll bar shoot up it's like what you see in a race car the little bar that comes up behind the driver's head when it's a convertible it's those but they they deploy automatically when they detect that the car is you know going upside down i guess i don't know exactly what well it is. you hope they do but how old's your car uh it's pretty old 13 years now yeah it's not too i put a lot of miles on her and i never flipped her so i don't know for sure that they work <laughs> <laughs> well let's hope it never comes to that or uh, if it, with my luck they would work when i didn't want them to mm-hmm. like kim and i went by my storage unit the other night and I was grabbing something out and I sat it on the back of the car, like right on top of one of those things. And then I thought about it after I did it. I wonder if pressure on it would set it off. And I could just imagine for a second, one of those things popping up and just shooting that box into the stratosphere. Oh, <laughs> uh, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. But I, I love to hear people say that there cannot be haunted cars. There's no cursed cars. There's no haunted cars. Well, what about mirrors? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, what about rings and necklaces? Absolutely. What about, like, swords and knives and stuff? For sure. What about a car? Nope. No way. Yeah, cars are one of those things that people get so attached to. And if if we can attach ourselves to an object or a place... Mm-hmm. A car seems like a logical choice for a lot of people. Right. I mean, especially if, you, you know, maybe not an 87 Ford Escort, but if you've got a Porsche <laughs> Carrera, that could be your baby, you know? Or yeah. a Harley. Well, I mean, or some anything. people get attached to like normal vehicles. True. You know, my, my neighbor has a, a 2000 Jeep Cherokee XJ. And she will not get rid of it for anything. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk about some other haunted and cursed vehicles after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. On to some cursed and haunted vehicles. And... We're going to get into just kind of a short story about each one because there's just not a whole lot out there about most of these. But the first one was allegedly the uh, inspiration for the movie Christine, which if you haven't seen it or read the Stephen King book, it's basically about a car that uh, kills a bunch of people. Uh, do you have any, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Do you, do you have any details to add to that? No, I mean, I know the general plot of the movie. I haven't seen gotcha. it in a while either. And I know that they kind of refer, they, they make uh, references to it in an episode of Futurama. Okay. Where they find this like electric car in a factory and it's like a bender is bitten by a wear car or something like that. 
And so on the full moon, he turns into like a hot rod and starts running people over. (laughs) And they find like that's a robot's dream. It was the they I don't remember what it was. It was some electric car that they found. It's like it's the most evil car ever made. And it's like the progenitor of the wear cars. But it's very to me, it seemed like very much a reference to Christine. It was like a self-repairing, intelligent car that could like wait and outthink you. All right. So the Golden Eagle is a name given to a 1964 Dodge 330 limited edition. And it seems pretty basic. I mean, it's a nice looking car. Um, It it was fast, very fast. It was not something that really took off, though. So its history is kind of unique. It started off as a police interceptor. So that would be probably a pretty darn good police interceptor for 1964. Um, It was basically from the story that I kind of cobbled together from different sites, it was used by three police officers and generally there's three shifts. So it would be uh, someone that would work you know, 10 at night to six in the morning would drive it. Somebody would work 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And somebody would work 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. driving this car. Well, all three police officers who had previously driven this Golden Eagle ended their lives in murder-suicides with their whole family. That's insane. So if you're going to put a psychic imprint on a car or put some credence in that it might have something to do with it. That's pretty, pretty solid stuff, right? Yeah. That, that was part of the story that I was aware of already that how many officers was it? Like three, six, three. Okay. So maybe it's six people total. Yeah. They killed their wives. They killed their children in one case, at least it reminds me of, uh, what is it? The fourth kind where after the guy, gains back his memories of his abduction. He kills his family because he's like, I, you know, I have to protect you from what's out there. Yeah. I may have to rewatch that movie. I don't remember that part. I know it was a good movie though, but so it started off. I mean, that's a a horrible way to start your existence. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the car kind of turned its life around, I guess, for a little bit. It basically served as like a fast ambulance because, I mean, we can imagine in 1964, 65, the ambulances were basically like what you see as mail trucks now. You know, they probably had a top speed of like 60 miles an hour. But this car, 425 horses. And it had a top speed of at least 125. And I found some reports that said 137. So it was quick getting to, you know, accident scenes, getting to uh, people's houses that were, you know, injured or, you know, had heart attack or whatever. And it got them to the hospital, as you like to say, lickety split. So it may have saved a lot of lives, too. Uh, now getting into the paranormal, there were rumors that the car was seen going at least 200 and 
up to 300 miles an hour. Don't know really how you could tell if a car just flashes by, but in any case, it had flames erupting from beneath its chassis, which I think if you were going 200 miles an hour, your car would catch on fire pretty quick. Yeah, but, that was <laughs> that was part of uh, the research that I thought was pretty funny. The stories, the eyewitness accounts. The yeah. car had blue flames coming out from under it or flames coming from the tires, <laughs> that the tires were all the way down to the steel cores. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and it is funny because we, we do see, you know, people driving these cars and are like, oh, they can go, you know, 180 miles an hour. And it's like, yeah, but will your tires? Because if they don't, then, you know, you're, you're yeah, going to Yeah, that's a... That's a big thing to consider because my, I might've told you I had a Camaro, I had a 2015 Camaro mm -hmm. and I found out, let's call it an amateur race. I found out during an amateur race, uh, that it was electronically limited to like 128 miles an hour. Hmm. When you hit that speed, it would disconnect the transmission from the engine. Essentially. Mm -hmm. It was like shifting it into neutral. Wouldn't allow yeah. you to do anything else. And it gave you this little warning and I, you know, I, I took it somewhere, my mechanic or some, yeah, my mechanic. And I, you know, I was having him do regular stuff to it. And I was like, what, what is this, by the way, hypothetically, if this had happened to me, why would that be? And they just kind of looked at me for a second. And he was like, it's because the, uh, the, t the factory tires aren't rated for speeds higher than that. Makes sense. They said this car will hypothetically do like 150, 155. They said, but mm -hmm. the, you know, normal tires aren't rated for that. He's like, you need to get some like Pirelli's or something. Yeah. So I yeah, went out I mean, and got some Pirellis. <laughs> uh -oh. Well, <laughs> did you have them? Tires. Well, yeah, but did you have them turn the governor off? You know what? I never got around to it. Yeah. I bought the newer tire. I just needed new tires anyway, but I never had them remove that limiter because I never really raced it again or did anything with it. It's like, eh, it can do whatever, but it's fun as just a cruiser. But sure. yeah, a lot of cars, they won't, you know, they won't handle stuff like that. But yeah, point of that, just because the car could theoretically do it doesn't mean it's a good idea exactly. or that it can actually hold up to it exactly so at at one point it was bought by an elderly gentleman and he passed and then a lady named wendy allen became the car's new quote-unquote custodian so this is where things get a little murky so she said that she noticed peculiar things like the car's doors flinging open while on the highway, a lingering sensation of being watched, and things like the seatbelts unclicking on their own. If your seatbelts are unclicking on their own, you need to tow that car to the mechanic immediately. And if there's one thing you guys get out of this episode, put your seatbelt on. But we digress. Let's get back to the Golden Eagle. Named so because of the fact that somebody, I guess, didn't like the color. And they used a brush to paint it gold. So, not the best paint. Batteries left inside this car mysteriously exploded. And cameras that were used to take pictures of the car had their film melt. And the, you know, the cameras would breakdown because obviously we're talking you know back in the day but later on phones 
electronics. They didn't work when people were in the car. And then once they got out, it never worked again. If you get in a car and like your phone explodes, maybe think about it. So there were attempts by local Mormon groups to vandalize the cursed car. They didn't like it. They thought that there was a demon in it or, or whatever. And the elders would actually encourage the younger kids to go vandalize the car because, you know, that's how you get rid of demons. And no word on what the vandalism entailed. I know it included breaking glass and like scratching and stuff like that. But I, you would think if anything, you would want to write like some sort of spell or a cross or a, you know, a Bible passage or something like that. So in any case, a couple of the elders, at least two, and I've heard up to three, uh, were struck by lightning. These elders who encouraged these kids to vandalize the car, the car itself had once been struck by lightning as well. So obviously it's connected, but three people struck by lightning. I mean, like there's no medical records of, you know, Elder Smith was admitted to this hospital for being struck by lightning or anything like that. So it's kind of a cool story at this point. Uh, so David Brom was known as the Cascade Killer. And uh, allegedly, after he touched the car, he drove home and used an axe to murder four family members and their pet dog. And that's a whole nother podcast in itself. But if that's true, that only adds to the enigmatic Golden Eagle. But the local Mormon community deemed the car to be haunted by a malevolent force, leading them to disassemble it into pieces. According to the legend, they connected multiple trucks with tow ropes to various parts of the car and tore it apart, all without direct physical contact due to the perceived curse. So basically, they're taking six trucks, backing it up, hooking tow ropes to it, and pulling it apart. That works great if you are tying the a horse to a person and you're trying to pull them apart. But, I mean, in theory, it might pull the bumper off or something like that, but the car's not going to get, like, quartered, right? Not exactly. Yeah, I don't know how that would work. I mean, it would pull body work and stuff apart, but not necessarily a frame. Yeah, it's not going to destroy the car completely. I think that's an overly dramatic approach <laughs> yeah. to trying to destroy a car. Right. If they're pulling parts off of James Dean's wreck, I mean, this isn't going to do much to the car. Mm -hmm. uh, so this lady, Wendy Allen, so she had to go online to locate and restore the scattered car parts, an endeavor that cost a substantial $57,000 and according to some reports, exceeded a quarter million dollars for a complete restoration due to its extreme rarity. She has pictures of this car on her website. It does not look like it has been restored. So I think that this is maybe kind of a hole in the story, but it's out there. Mm. And to safeguard the car from prying eyes and its mysterious aura, Wendy has since kept it in storage. On her website, Wendy Allen, who claims to be autistic, 
was asked why people think her car is haunted. Quote, why do people say your car is haunted? And she replies, I don't know. Maybe it's because they are too R-word. Now keep in mind, this is coming from someone who claims to have autism. To look at logic, facts, and science. So they run screaming after lunacy, fiction, and fairy tales. Short answer, I have a deeply mentally disturbed uncle who will remain nameless in this podcast, who in 1968, at the age of six, tried to kill his two-year-old sister by climbing onto an overpass and throwing her off it in front of a car. That car was a 1964 Dodge 330. When adults asked the boy why he tried to kill his sister, he claimed that Satan was sitting on the hood of the car and told him to do it. Now, she goes on to say that she hates Stephen King and his fans, and she is also the gypsy witch from his book, Thinner. (laughs) Hey, it is what it is. I shouldn't laugh at a gypsy witch, but holy shit. It is what it is. I mean, she hates him because of his depiction of gypsies. And to me, it's kind of like, get over it. You know, it's a book. And obviously people pull from reality to write a book or make a movie or or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I I don't think, and I've seen Thinner a couple times. And to me, it looks like the guy that was cursed was kind of the villain, right? Like, I don't think that the gypsies were depicted as being villains so much. I don't know that I've ever seen that movie, to be honest, so I'm not going to weigh in. It's a pretty good movie. We don't need to. But it seems like fairly often the people who are, the people you like are supposed to be the villain. Yeah. Like we've talked about that. Rorschach was supposed to be an unlikable character. Don Draper is supposed to be an unlikable character. And they're often the one that people get behind. Yeah, this guy that gets cursed is despicable so but that's the story of the golden eagle and that's allegedly the story of christine as well you know the inspiration in any case and let's jump ahead to ryan's favorite band franz ferdinand's limo all right so franz ferdinand was the archduke of austria and is famously known for being the catalyst that set off the chain of events leading to the commencement of WW1. And a lot like JFK, uh, Franz Ferdinand was killed while riding in his limousine as well as his wife. The car itself emerged from the attack unscathed, but it bore a significant psychic imprint that would linger. In the dozen years following the Archduke's assassination, the car changed ownership 15 times. So of these owners, a chilling pattern emerged. 13 met untimely deaths. One was driven to madness, no pun intended. And there was even a bizarre incident where the car fell onto someone. So it's a lot like the tales of other supposedly haunted and cursed autos and this vehicle eventually found its way into a museum. So it was allegedly rolled or flipped at least twice, but like I said, uh, my buddy Jeremy from the Haunted Garage 
podcast pointed out that the car in the museum has no damage consistent with the rollover, let alone two. So what we would be looking for, especially from a car this old, would be a bent frame or a frame that had been rebent or fixed. That would be noticeable if the car had actually been rolled a couple times. Since it's been in the museum, there's been no reported fatalities linked to the Archduke's limousine, suggesting that perhaps the dark cloud that surrounded it has finally lifted. All right, you got any final thoughts on the Franz Ferdinand limo? In the museum now, it's black, but just as a side note, when he was in it, it was blood red. (laughs) No, no particular thoughts on that one. It's not it's not super exciting, I know. No, it's more of like an infamous car than a than a cursed one per se. All right, we'll tell you about Bonnie and Clyde's death car after a quick break. Welcome back to War Booty and Suge Knight Shyamalan. Bonnie and Clyde, among the most infamous criminals in history, met a grim end that serves as a stark reminder the crime ultimately doesn't lead to prosperity. So we all know who Bonnie and Clyde are, I assume. Super famous criminals that uh, basically drove around and robbed banks. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, in 1932, they were trying to make a desperate escape attempt and there's a kind of a famous scene in in their movie where they're just unloaded on with tommy guns so back in those days uh people would get like tom i think they were just called thompson submachine guns and you could get Mm -hmm. a uh like a drum magazine basically or whatever that would just hold a ton of ammo and you could just unload with these things and they were basically assassinated i mean you know they had guns too but i mean their car was just lit up it was an old model uh ford model 18 with a v8 and there were over a hundred bullet holes in the car after the standoff so Apparently, people who have taken photographs near it often report strange anomalies, including unexplained mists, orbs, or eerie shadows that defy explanation, unless you take into account that all these bullet holes are going to have weird kind of reflective qualities. It's not a a smooth surface anymore. Uh, You know, I never put much faith in pictures taken of glass because there's all kinds of weird stuff that can happen with glass, with reflections and orbs and dust and all that stuff. But occasionally individuals claim to catch fleeting glimpses of figures inside the car. So even if nothing visibly supernatural occurs in the vicinity of this car, simply standing near it can evoke an uncanny sensation of being observed. And we find this, it seems, in all these cars. And I think that some of that 
like you said, is just kind of an intention. Like if you expect that, that's what's going to happen. So now obviously it's at a museum and staff members avoid going near it after dark because that's when the ghosts come out, apparently. Uh, it's got an overwhelming sense of foreboding and an inexplicable heaviness. So it's also seen as a harbinger of the eerie and unsettling. What do you think about that? You think that that's, there's a good chance this car could have their uh, kind of ghosts still lingering? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. We were just talking about cars being something that could be haunted. You know, something that was important to people. And if you're traveling criminals on the run, your car probably matters to you. I mean, there are pictures on the FBI website where they have stories of, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and photos of them. You know, they're posed in front of their vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely, definitely a possibility when with all the, you know, sort of emotional energy that it's been mm -hmm. exposed to. And with the intention, again, it could be like a tulpa type thing. If you're like, oh, look, the, you know, I have to mop up near this car with 100 bullet holes in it where I know two of the most famous criminals in history died. Mm -hmm. Like you, you might expect to see something and you might make it happen for yourself. It's awfully ghoulish, though. Like just the way, I mean, if you see the old pictures of people crowded around that car when it was on display. Oh, yeah. And people would come and see the the bodies of people that were, you know. Yeah. Dead. <laughs> All right, let's jump ahead to the jumping car of Cape Town. In South Africa, there's a peculiar case involving a car that appears to have a strong claim to being haunted. In 2004, a family's Renault Megane, I think is how you say it, maybe Mejan, uh, this car began exhibiting bizarre behavior that defied explanation. But we may be able to explain it, Ryan. We'll get to that. So late at night, one, one night when the family was sleeping, well, they, they woke up because they heard their car starting. So they obviously... They don't got woke. <laughs> so, you know, you just imagine you're you know, sleeping, maybe you got your windows open, you hear your car start up, you're going to be like, what the hell? Somebody's trying to steal my car, right? Mm. So I think most people would probably run out and see what's happening, maybe have their wife call the cops, whatever. But obviously they called the police and the police were kind of like, okay, they show up and they're like, well, the car started on its own and it was jumping around and the cops are like okay um let's uh do a sobriety test real quick now the cops were obviously they didn't believe it but they did see the car start up on its own so the car seemed to be lurching and moving erratically as if it had a mind of its own despite the absence of a driver or a key in the ignition Everyone watched in disbelief, and then the car emitted an enormous roar, at least as enormous of a roar as a Peugeot, or was it a, a Renault? Renault. Renault. can put out. It's, it's not going to be a Hemi roar, but in any case, it proceeded to inflict substantial damage upon itself by careening into a nearby tree. 
Renault, the car's manufacturer, proposed that it was a malfunctioning and rusty starter, but this raises a question of how the Renault managed to navigate itself and drive itself basically into a tree. So there's a few things to look at here. First of all, I don't know how many people out there still know how to drive a stick shift, but if you've learned to drive a stick shift, you certainly know the feeling of having it in first gear and kind of popping the clutch, right? Because it, it takes time to, you know, learn the balance of the clutch and gas. But if you've ever done that and you've popped the clutch in first gear, a lot of times it'll just lurch forward like 10 feet, stop, lurch forward 10 feet, stop. It's not always going to just start in first gear like normal. So it, it will bounce yeah. around <clears throat> like that. Um, well, I mean, but the idea of it, the idea of it being a starter, I guess, is a possibility of somehow the starter is getting power. Mm hmm. And it's just cranking the engine for a couple seconds and it's in gear. So it starts right. moving a little bit, but I, that would take a lot of, I feel like that would take a lot of power. And I don't know why it would get like a short that would cause that to happen just for a second and then stop. Well, then for another he, second and stop. All right. So I've got a great story about me. Yay. Me. Uh, <laughs> one time uh, my dad, well, my grandpa had bought a new house, grandma and grandpa. And they had like they had a huge backyard and they wanted a bunch of fill dirt. So my dad rented a uh, dump truck, which I guess you could do back then. And, you know, filled it with dirt, dumped it in their backyard, uh, parked it in their driveway and just put it in reverse. Right. Left the keys in. Didn't watch me. I was like three, three or four climbed into the car, cranked the key. Now we're talking about, a, you know, something with, I'm, I'm assuming tons of electrical force in the battery and starter. It's not going to be a little battery powering these things. And then there's so much torque that the e-brake didn't even matter. Right. So the car started up or the dump truck, started up and backed up my grandpa's driveway and my grandpa had to jump out of the way of the car and it or the dump truck and it just smashed into the garage and basically destroyed the garage so just turning a car on with it in gear there is a possibility that it would start up on its own and you know just be in gear basically uh so that's a possibility. I understand what you're saying, that it's highly unlikely that a short would cause it to start on its own. But in any case, it is a possibility, at least according to Renault. Um, we all know that our steering wheels lock, right? So you can turn your steering wheel, and I always do this, especially in my truck because it's a stick, turn the wheel and get the steering wheel to lock. So the tires are turned a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. So if that truck was to start up, it wouldn't go straight. It would curve usually to the left. It would, it, it would turn too. So in my opinion, these things and the fact that it didn't just continue on 
they kind of point to me as this being a mechanical malfunction. What do you think? Yeah, I would think so too. Some kind of mechanical problem. Although there there was a story on Anything Goes. I'll see if I can find it. We can put it in the show notes. But basically it was a story that was submitted by this guy. And Alexis said a few times on his show that he's tried to get a hold of him since then and then he's never been able to contact him. Mm-hmm. But essentially he was hired to, you know, he's a driver. Right. And he was hired to bring this truck, you know, from wherever it was to wherever it's going. You know, significant mm-hmm. journey. But, you know, this old truck driver, I think he was living in Louisiana, something like that, had passed. And the truck was getting sold and he was supposed to go get it. And he said he, you know, made it down there, was going through the bayou. And he said it was like incredible. You know, it was this truck that was 30 or 40 years old, but looked brand new. Like looked perfect. Like clearly this guy loved this thing. Mm -hmm. And he talked about loading it onto the trailer on his truck, you know, talking to the wife and, you know, she made him some cookies or coffee and food and whatever for the road. And it was a really nice experience. And then he takes off with it and, you know, he talks about, he gets pulled over by the cops Mm -hmm. uh, and the cop like has his gun out and is pointing at him. And he's like, get out of the truck. Like who's in the truck, who's in the truck on your trailer and all this stuff. Yeah. And he's saying that, you know, and he goes, there's nobody back there. So they get out and they look and he's like, there are no, the batteries are disconnected. There's no gas in the tanks. Like there shouldn't be anything. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. The cop was saying that the lights on that truck were flashing SOS. Huh? And like when the cops saw there was nothing there, no batteries, no nothing. He was freaked out and left. There was another story from that trip where he went to a, like a rest stop and, you know, went to use the showers and whatever. And when he came out, oh, that's so gross. <laughs> somebody was, was telling him that his, that the truck on his trailer had started up and was squealing the tires and like jumping around, but it was chained down, you know, mm. all kinds of crazy things happening with it. But it was, yeah, he was, he, he, I forget the name of the guy who originally owned it, but he basically started, you know, being like, okay, Hey man, like we just got to get you where you're going. Like, yeah, just, just let's, let's calm down for this. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, stuff happens. You know, I believe these stories. I mean, I've, I've seen, I've heard so many stories of like dolls and things like that moving. It's like, if your car is the important thing to you, why not? It, it is something that you would expect eventually to hear. Oh, this car has this issue. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, oh, well, if you, uh, you know, don't take care of your starter and you've got rusty connectors and stuff like this, this could happen. But it also could mean that the, and I don't know how have any idea how many of these cars are out there, but you would expect that someone else would report it and then someone else. But then there's also people that are going to be like, well, Obviously, I'll just take it to my can my mechanic. This is a mechanical malfunction. They're not going to like, you know, put this story out about a ghost car. They're just going to say, "Well, this is obviously what it is." So, mm-hmm. it's interesting that the lights were flashing SOS because there's things that you know used to be kind of a signal. I don't think a police officer would notice that now, but. Like my dad was a cop for forever and 
he would come to my house and be like, you, to turn your porch light off. You know, it would be on from the night before or whatever. And I'm like, we just forgot to turn it off, dude. It's not a big deal. And he's like, no, when you have your porch light on in the day, that's a signal to police that you need help. So you're going to get police coming to your house if you don't turn your porch light off. So huh. I've never heard that. Yeah, there's weird stuff like that, man. Everything's weird. We'll talk about Dr. Jack Kevorkian's van after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. If you're a true crime enthusiast, which I hope you are, because I hope you're listening to the True Crime Sinister Souls episodes that are coming out, but you probably know who Dr. Jack Kevorkian is. So he was considered an angel of death, and he helped numerous people commit suicide. So it was done as kind of euthanasia, right? He'd give them different chemicals to kind of pass peacefully. He was not someone who, you know, normally you hear angel of death and you think like a nurse that, you know, kills people that are in the hospital or something like that. He was assisting in suicides. So there is a difference, you know, wherever you stand on it, this is an episode about haunted cars. So Mm -hmm. I just want to make it clear that even if you think what he was doing was wrong, as I do, he wasn't murdering people that were totally innocent and had no idea what was going on or anything like that. So, yeah, he was basically trying to provide people with a mercy that we don't do in this country. Well, yeah, like a, a almost like a hostage. It's, that's how and, he would have been putting it, yeah. And his lawyer uh, later talked about how some of our laws now for hospice are because of Jack Kevorkian. And he basically says, you know, it's not a whole lot different what he was doing than going into hospice and they just load you up on morphine until you die. So... But in any case, he used a white Volkswagen microbus, which is kind of a, I guess, like a cult car classic. Like it's got a big following. You know, the hippies used it. This is what what we're talking about. If you were touring around following Grateful Dead back in the 80s, 70s or 80s. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s or 2000s. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or the mystery machine yeah, was clearly based off one of these in the cartoon. So he used this van and at least, well, there's one person that's known to have died in the van that he actually went to trial for. But there were apparently two other people, you know, that uh, had met their demise in this van. One of them, the lawyer talks about in the Zach Baggins episode that uh, the guy was so tall that he had his feet sticking out the window. 
And the lawyer oh was following Kevorkian around in this van. So it was a driver, Kevorkian, and this really tall guy. And it's just so weird to think, like you're driving down the road, you see this white Volkswagen microbus with feet sticking out the window, and there's somebody being euthanized in that van. That's pretty crazy stuff, man. Yeah. So, of course, your boy, Zach Baggins, bought the van. I think he bought the van for like $33,000 or something like that. It was nowhere near what he paid for James Dean's axle. People brave enough to enter the van have reported uncanny sensations, eyes observing them, and an overwhelming aura of sorrow that lingers. So... It is in Zach Baggins' museum now. And, of course, in this episode, they had Kevorkian's lawyer on there to verify that it was the right van. And he did verify it. And there's uh, pictures of it being towed with the same dents and body damage and stuff that is clearly the same car as what Baggins has unless he masterfully created the same dents yeah, and stuff like some that forgery yeah so he has the real van uh they did a little investigation in there and they had the frank's box and they said do you know who this is they had somebody that lived in kevorkian's house and of course the frank's box is like and they're like did you hear that <laughs> clearly it said bridget yeah yeah, I heard Bridget too. Oh yeah, I totally heard Bridget. Yeah, it said Bridget. Yeah, boss. Yeah, boss. And it's like, come on, man. <laughs> so in any case, it's in his museum if you want to go see it. But yeah, I mean, I could see how there could be some weird attachments to that. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of just darkness, misery in that. It's not even just like the the euthanizing of people in it, but like the the mental state that would have brought people to it. Because, yeah, like you absolutely. said, it wasn't like he was just doing it to do it. He wasn't doing it without people being aware of what was happening. He was, I, I think, he believed that he was providing a service that they wouldn't be able to get elsewhere. Yeah. So he is credited, or I don't know how you want to say it, but accused of yeah 130 euthanasias and his lawyer in this interview with uh zach baggins said it was well over 200 so mm. i don't know he said that uh he got him off you know i mean as lawyers brag well i got him off on this got him off on that got him off on that got him out of jail on everything until he decided to defend himself. So in the podcast that you and I have done on some true crime, uh, obviously, you know, you and I have watched a lot of true crime shows. I've done a lot of true crime podcast episodes. Pretty much if you want to defend yourself, it's almost like saying you're crazy. Right. I mean, 
it's so important when you're in court, you know, it's, it, you don't hear too much about people being like, Psh, I'm going to do my own appendectomy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. shit, I'm going to uh, reattach my hand myself. But you hear about people representing themselves in court. Don't do it. All right. Moving on. The ghost crash of Surrey. While many alleged haunted cars are associated with spirits or mysterious presences inside, there are anomalies that defy easy explanation. So in Surrey, which is in Great Britain, the police started getting a bunch of phone calls. Uh, they would be 911 calls. Not sure what it is over there. It might be 999. 999. Yeah, it is. So they got several calls of people saying, man, we just saw this car wreck. This car just, you know, we saw the headlights veered off the road. We saw the light shining off into the trees and the car, you know, go off the road. And um, it, it, these people most likely were not calling from cell phones. They had to go somewhere to call the police, go to a payphone or a business or a house or whatever. So they weren't, they didn't stop at the scene and call from the scene like we would do today. And then, the, of course, the police are like, okay, well, you know, we'll be right out. And when they came out, there was no trace of any crash. Now, they had multiple eyewitnesses, you know, not just one family that saw it and called. They had multiple different drivers that saw it and stopped and called. And so there was no skid marks, no nothing like that. But they, they kept searching and they found a wrecked car that matched the descriptions given by the callers. Only problem with this is that the car and the driver had been missing for months. And they found decayed mm. remains of a young missing man. No plausible explanation for how the car had seemingly vanished, only to reappear months later. But the grim discovery of the deceased individual inside. So we hear about ghosts coming back to solve their own murders or their disappearances or whatever. So that seems to be what happened here. What yeah, do you think about like the validity? More like a stone tape theory kind of thing. Past traumatic events replaying themselves. Yeah, that could be the case too. I like to think he was trying to solve his own disappearance though. Yeah, I mean, that could be. I've heard stories of like the military, though, you know, doing exercises and, you know, like military exercises, like mm -hmm. flights and things like that. And they'll somehow encounter, you know, planes or bases or something like from way in the past, like they'll spot planes that are really out of place. Sure. You know, and they'll find out like what they saw was basically a replay of an event that happened 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, I, I think it's got to be one of those two. Yeah, replaying it. That's a really interesting story. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Not cool yeah, to I, find I like decaying remains, but... <laughs> no, but it is... I do like the idea that it's, you know, the, uh, the, the victim of the crash found a way to, like, replay it to yeah. get help. All right. Let's jump to the Black Volga. In Eastern Europe, and this is going to be Poland, probably, well, definitely Russia, uh, Ukraine, 
Czech Republic, uh, d- stuff like that, maybe. Yeah, just mostly Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, there's a legend of the Black Volga. So the Volga is just a, a car that's named after the river where the plant is, the Volga River. So that's super awesome to start off with. Uh, like no creativity whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, so these these were considered limousines. They don't look like limousines, but uh, it, what is the definition of a limo? Is it just something really, that has like a wraparound seat or something? Because I don't really know because I've seen people refer to like Lincoln Town cars and stuff as limos. And it's like, it's not really, it's just an L series town car. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, we hear the term stretch limos. So maybe that is a more fitting term for these, you know, what we would call a limo would be like 15 seats in the back wrap around with a wet bar and four uh, sunroofs. Right. But that's not what we're talking about when we say limousine here. We're talking more like the town car you're talking about. Uh, So they had an ominous reputation for being associated with disappearances and kidnappings. And there's a good reason for that. So the black Volgas were only available to the elite in the KGB and had a 5.5 liter V8, which produced about 160 horsepower. (laughs) Um, so when we say black Volga, we're obviously talking about the color and it's the black Volgas that were not available to the average citizen. And most cars were not available to the average citizen. Yeah. You would have had to order in the Soviet Union. You had to order a car like four years in advance and you might get it eventually. Yeah. And unless you're an oligarch. Exactly. And if you're getting a Volga, that is going to be the one that has like the 1.5 liter, 40 horsepower. And it's like not... two stroke. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like you see a guy on a bicycle flying past you and you can't keep up. But <laughs> the black Volga was associated with the KGB. Uh, we know our FBI and CIA don't ever do anything wrong, but the KGB is evil. And they would uh, use these cars to kidnap people, which happened constantly. So so that part, I don't think, is uh, in question. We know that they were used by the KGB. We know that the KGB regularly abducted its own citizens. So people claim that these cars would seem to vanish into thin air as they turned a corner. And... A lot of them said that they never saw a driver. These cars also had uh, curtains that would go around the back. So maybe that's what made them a limo, right? Could be, yeah. Although my dad had uh, two different vans, GMC vans, that had like the little decorative curtains on the rear windows. (laughs) Well, are you sure you weren't kidnapped as a baby and he's your real dad? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well, that's but good to know. They, they definitely had like, you know, it looked like house curtains almost. Like they were cinched at the middle. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't really, I mean, I guess maybe you could have moved them. I don't know. That was a weird trend. It was. Carp- carpeted walls and ceilings. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff in like the 50s and 60s where they tried to make the car 
more like home. Mm -hmm. Like I saw Weird. some old 50s sort of animated ads where they're like the car of the future, you know, for the missus. And it's got <laughs> like flower planters on the fenders and stuff. Oh, my gosh. It's just horrific. Oh, they have those in the new bugs. The well, I, I say new. Oh, I mean, they like had 95 yeah. and up had that flower. Well, they, on yeah, the old one. Dash. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Ridiculous. All <laughs> right. So a lot of people said that they never saw the driver. Hopefully it wasn't because there were curtains up everywhere and the person was actually watching where they were going. But the kids were told that you will be taken in a black Volga. So if you see one run and you know we don't know for sure if it's associated with the black volga or not but there were a lot of children during this time that were found shortly after these alleged black volga abductions that were drained of blood so that's kind of like hmm. an adrenochrome classic recipe right from back in the day but sure allegedly if you were stupid enough to chase after the car You'd be dead within a day. So I, I think there's no doubt that these things were associated with kidnappings. Um, don't know about the no driver thing because it certainly wouldn't have been Tesla technology in these cars. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's just a car associated with the group that used it. Kind of like if you saw a Crown Vic for a long time, you think of police or FBI. Or a white panel van, you'd think of, you know, child abduction. Mm -hmm. So doesn't mean that all white vans are used to kidnap children, but hey. Nope, most of them are used by carpenters and plumbers, I find. Yeah. All right. So, what a what a, oh, Elvis's red Cadillac. <laughs> Elvis Presley's ghost has been sighted in many locations of course, in Graceland and in Hollywood. And it might surprise you to learn that Elvis's car also carries with it an eerie legend for those inclined to believe. Perhaps an enigmatic one. Perhaps. But the Cadillac itself hasn't been seen since the King of Rock and Roll's passing. But that hasn't deterred it from becoming one of the few automobiles surrounded by ghostly tales. So basically what's happening is people in and around Graceland are seeing this red Cadillac driven by someone who looks like Elvis. And I guess to make a long story short, they just think it's an impersonator driving a cool old Cadillac mm -hmm. until they see it silently pass through a solid wall. And that's when they realize it's not an impersonator at all, but the real ghost of Elvis and Elvis's Cadillac. All right. You mentioned uh, Louisiana earlier, and there's another car that comes out of Louisiana. 1937 Cord 810 Worcester. This particular Ooh. car. Oh, you didn't think I'd get it, did you? No, I just a Cord. I've never, even, I've never even heard of them. Oh, my God. They're so cool. But they're they're one of those brands where if you find one, they're one of the brands that shut down basically after the Great Depression. Okay. And if you if you find one at auction, it's probably going to go for a couple million. And probably not to somebody like Oof. Zach Baggins. Yeah. Well, it's up there with like Duesenbergs and Auburns and things like that. 
Well, so this car had been hidden in storage for 75 years before it was brought to light again in 2017. So it was a custom-made car for a Louisiana senator with a singular request, a vehicle sufficiently armored to ensure his safety. And it seems like there's a lot of politicians in Louisiana that are murdered, but he too met a violent end and got shot and killed before he could ever use the car. Then ownership of the vehicle was passed to a naval officer who died during the Second World War before he had the opportunity to take the wheel. Hmm. Number seven, London bus. We had to get a bus in here. In 1934, one driver experienced a tragic fate as his car erupted into flames because he swerved into a wall when he saw the enigmatic phantom bus. Circumstances surrounding this peculiar incident lacked any logical explanation because why would somebody just turn off the road and run into a car Unless they were texting, of course. But there were a lot of witnesses that came forward and they said that they saw this ghostly bus appear before the car, which is what this person was swerving from. And so from the 1930s to about 1990, there were just Londoners everywhere that reported narrowly escaping a collision with an unlit, driverless number seven bus that would appear in the center of the road. Nobody wants to run into a bus, right? Mm -mm. Certainly not. So this bus manifests around Cambridge Gardens at about 1.15 a.m. And that's obviously a time when there's no buses running. Uh, it startles drivers and then would vanish into the night without leaving a trace, leaving both eyewitnesses in the Popo bewildered. We'll tell you about a motorcycle in India with a shrine dedicated to its worship after a quick break. <laughs> Talking about Christine, man. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. We're going to talk about the Bullet Baba. It's fun to say, say oh. it. That is Bullet Baba. I like that. It is good. So in 1988, a young man, uh, I'm going to try with Om Singh Rathor, lost control of his motorbike and had a fatal collision with a tree that killed him. The motorbike involved in the incident ended up in a nearby ditch instead of the accident site, which in itself isn't too weird because... I mean, people think that a motorcycle without a rider on it is just going to fall over, but that's not really the case. You know, the, uh, I guess the centrifugal force of the, yeah, yeah it seems like keep that it. keeps it upright. Cause you see like motorcycle races where somebody will fall off and the bike keeps going yeah. for a while until it smashes into something. Yeah. Sometimes it does better without the rider. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, you lose a hundred or 200 pounds, you're gaining horsepower right that's true good point hey and you know what uh 20 horsepower on a motorcycle is going to make a big difference for whatever reason they waited till the next morning and they took the bike back to the police station but once again the next day the bike had vanished from the police station and returned to the original accident location baffled hmm. 
the police decided to take extra precautions. They emptied the fuel tank and locked the bike in the police station to prevent tampering. But guess what happened? The next day, it mysteriously appeared in the same ditch. And this happened for several days. So, word spread quickly among the locals and many came to believe it was a miracle. A miracle. A miracle, Ryan. A miracle. To the point that they constructed a temple in honor of what they called the bullet bike. Visitors to the shrine offer prayers to the bike and its late owner seeking protection during their travels. Hmm. So, yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah, weird, but interesting. I'd be like, burn that bike. Mm-hmm. This bike keeps moving itself in the middle of the night. Like, there's a witch in that bike. Get it out of here. It's amazing what people will turn to worship. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Like, Elvis's face appeared in my piece of toast. Exactly. I'm going to sell to Zach Baggins for $300,000. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, Zach Baggins has a group of commandos, you know, the uh, expendables on their way to paratrooper into India to steal that motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So that's a cool story. Taxis of Japan, Ryan, the taxis of Japan. So this is after one of the tsunamis in, in Japan. Uh, People started to share accounts of mysterious encounters with ghosts. Basically Uh, they apparently left behind a trail of water as they vanished. So I think what's being alluded to here is that these are victims of the tsunami that probably lost their lives, you know, due to drowning. Uh, So some of these individuals even claim to be possessed by the spirits of those who perished in this natural disaster. So these taxi drivers would be driving through some of these, you know, almost like ghost town areas of Japan after this tsunami And they were picking up passengers who they thought were a little off. Uh, Some of these passengers would wear heavy coats and had wet hair. And most of this took place during the summer where, you know, even in Japan, it's pretty warm. So they would request to be taken to areas like Minamahama. Minamahama. Yeah. Minamahama. Minamahama. Not to be confused with Benihana. Or the famous Muppet song, Manamana. There you go. Even better. Uh, So the uh, taxi drivers, you know, they might say, hey, take me to Manamahama. And the taxi driver would be like, "Uh, there's really not anything there anymore. Like, why would you want to go there? And the passenger would reply with something like, have I died? And then the taxi driver would turn around. There's no one back there. Mm-hmm. A little creepy. <clears throat> it kind of lines up with ideas that I've heard before where it's like, once you realize you're dead, that's kind of what helps you move on. Yeah. Like you get out of that state of confusion a little bit. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. They would find that the seats were wet sometimes too. So nothing Mm. like uh, ghost moisture to have to clean up in your back seat. Mm. (laughs) 
let's see. So there, there was a lot of reports. There's no word on exactly how many, but there were a lot. They kind of align with the ghost lore we've talked about, where the Japanese ghosts, also known as Yuri, are believed to be the result of unfinished business or souls not laid to rest. What are your final thoughts on ghost cars in general? I believe it. I believe in ghost cars or like vehicles that appear and disappear. Um, they're just cool. A lot of the stories are really cool. That one that I was talking about from Lex Wall shows one of the best ones I ever heard on there. You know, and the idea of a car that is, well, I, I've actually seen, I forget what show it was, but it's, you know, it's one of these ghost shows where they talk about, you know, they're not investigating necessarily. They're kind of saying, hey, I have this story and here's what happened. And they do reenactments and dramatizations. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of those where, you know, a person will become like Christine and it'll be, they'll be influenced by whatever spirit is in their vehicle. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, we have the deaths that have occurred, but I haven't found any stories about people who use their cars to commit suicide that those cars have been haunted. Uh, You know, even in like talking about Zombie Road, there's two cases there. Uh, one case, like you were talking about, where they were just sitting in the car and it was like a lover's lane type deal and the exhaust leaked into the car and, and killed them. And then another one where somebody intentionally did it with, you know, like a, I think it was an old Dodge Charger, which I mean, it, that's probably got the most emissions out of any car I've seen. So. <laughs> There's a lot of fumes, but in any case, I think that's all I've got. Yeah, I think that's all I've got as well. I just find these stories really interesting. Cars are something that are, that are, they're so personal to us. Well, yeah, I mean, we customize. I feel like you can tell a lot. Yeah. And you can tell a lot by, I feel like you can tell a lot by the kind of car somebody drives, you know, whether they're just, I don't know, man, I judge people. When I see like a hundred pound woman get out of a Yukon Denali that's 37 feet long. Yeah. And she's alone. It's like, you're you're probably a housewife or some rich guy and you want this because you have two kids to carry around. You really could use like a Honda Accord, but you're not going to because you're too wealthy for that. You want to have this big old tank to drive around in. That's probably a negative thing for me to do to judge people that way. But it's like when I see somebody with an older car mm-hmm. who's taking care of it, those are the ones I admire. Last night, Kim and I went to dinner uh, in Florissant. And when we were pulling into the parking lot, right in front of us was like a 2000, like 98 to 2000 mm-hmm. Ford Taurus with a young guy in it. And it was like yeah. brand new looking. And out of all the other cars there, it's like, wow, look at that. Like, that's so cool. Like, how is that in such good shape? Like, it looks like it just can't, like, he turns and it's, the paint's still shiny. And it's like, how did he keep it in condition like that? What I love the most is Grandma's Buick with Meals on Wheels sticker and, uh, you know, I, I break for bakeries. <laughs> bumper sticker on it with like a thugged out dude driving it 
like straight up smoking a blunt with face tats. It's like, that's grandma's car. Yeah. Grandma is not a gangster. Oh, my God. Or he's got like rims on it. Oh, God. That drives me nuts. And I love rims on cars, man. I put wheels on most everything I've had. Uh, the S10, I just got the wheels powder coated because I like the factory wheels. But yeah, you see like a 1980 Caprice that is begging for oil and it's got $5,000 rims on it. And it's like, dude, your car is worth $4,000 total and those rims are 5000 You know what I mean? Like, like... Yeah, if yeah. if your wheels cost more than your car, just don't do it. Unless you're going to actually restore the car, and that's like the first thing you want to put on it. So I drive an old car because I I truly can't mm-hmm. think of one I want more. Like I like this car. They don't even make it anymore because for so long when I took it into the dealership, they'd be like, "Oh, you want to come check out the mm-hmm. new one?" And I know I've told you this before. It's like, yeah, I like the new one. It's yeah. exactly like mine. When there's some reason for me to get another one, maybe I'll buy a new one from you guys. And I just found out that they quit making the one I have, which is an Audi A5 Cabriolet. Which is European for convertible. (laughs) Yes. It's fancy. It's it's posh for convertible. Yeah. I just... Everything looks the same now. There's no creativity. I guess that wraps it up for final thoughts. You want to tell them what they need to know? As I said at the top of the show, please interact with the podcast through whatever your platform is. Any kind of interaction generally helps us with our battle against the algorithm. But if you want to let us know what you want to hear next, or if we missed any haunted car stories, or if you have your own, send it to us at cryptiquepodcast.gmail.com. respond to every email as fast as possible. So any anything that you send us, we will respond to very quickly. Maybe we should start reading some of the emails on the shows. Maybe that'll encourage people. Yep. Check us out on social media. YouTube and TikTok, Cryptique Podcast, without an underscore for YouTube, with an underscore for TikTok. And you can check out what we're selling over at CryptiquePodcastStore.com. Shout out to our friends at Haunted Garage. Uh, we, you know, listen to their their podcast on these cars to kind of get a little, you know, background information. So, you know, check them out if you want in-depth stories on, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about. And what do we always say? Don't sleep. Critique. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Boom. Done.